we at the CSP will do our utmost to support you and be as accessible through this difficult time as we possibly can. Welcome to episode one of the CSP newscast produced by Physio Matters. I'm Jack Chu. Each week we'll be hearing from CSP staff to answer your most frequently asked questions. This newscast seeks to keep you up to date with how the CSP is working for you during the COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic. All discussed topics are unpacked in detail at csp.org.uk forward slash news forward slash coronavirus. In this launch episode, I was joined by various members of the CSP's leadership team to give an overview of news from a variety of departments. Join us weekly from midday every Wednesday for the latest updates as we fight COVID-19 and its consequences together. Delighted to be here today for the first CSP newscast, hitting some frequently asked questions by members from the CSP's executive team. Delighted to have with me today, Karen Middleton, Chief Executive, who's going to be chatting first. Karen, thanks so much for coming on the first show um, to get this show on the road. What's your sense really initially as to how members have responded in this crisis we find ourselves in? Um, thanks, Jack, and, and thank you for, for, for doing this podcast. Um, I've just been completely overwhelmed, really, with the response of the profession um, in all sectors, um, whether working in the NHS, working in private practice, education, research, whether retired members, student members, everyone um, that I'm aware of is stepping up, practicing members, support workers, everybody, everybody is absolutely stepping up. And I think it's in so many different ways. So I think people are moving right out of their comfort zones in terms of the skills that they're using every day. Uh, they're reaching back in many places to um, skills that they honed a long time ago. Um, and they're having to bring them to the fore again. Um, you've got people who are into their retirement stepping up and students who aren't um, haven't completed their training yet and are stepping forward to um, uh, register and become part of the workforce um, right across the whole uh, spectrum of our membership um, physiotherapy workforce is really um, leaning in I would say and and I would add to that the CSP staff um, because my staff have really been working extended hours uh, to try and support um, members um, at, at an extraordinary time these are absolutely extraordinary times and and the effort has been extraordinary too there's lots of businesses and organizations that have had to then adapt to remote working but naturally a lot of them have been naturally quieter because of the market changes that's a, that is certainly not the case with the csp you've had to go remote but you've also then had to go distributed very quickly so could you tell me a little bit about the csp's response to the to the crisis generally yeah so the csp i mean a lot of people think the csp is bedford row we've got four offices across the uk and uh, about 33 home workers so already we've been working in a quite a distributed way we have regional teams uh, organized across the csp staff so uh, one of the things that i've been trying to do over the last six years is really um 
metaphorically move the CSP away from London so that members feel it is closer to them. But undoubtedly, uh, what this has done for us is at, uh, really uh, signal the change to all of us having to work from home. Uh, we finally closed the office at Bedford Row um, last Friday, uh, just over a week ago, and we've moved from 33 home workers to about 130 in a few weeks. Uh, so that's been a tremendous effort by everyone. Um, at the same time as keeping the service going for members. Undoubtedly, the response to uh, supporting members has fallen to the inquiries team, the PAS team, the professional advisor service, and also my colleagues in ERAS. So that's the trade union and employment services helplines. And all the inquiry, uh, all the queries have increased by phone and by email over 200% in the last week. So that gives you some idea of uh, why we had to open at the weekend for urgent COVID-19 inquiries, why directors have been working uh, late into the evening to, to try and triage a lot of these calls. And um, it's primarily, I would suppose, be around three big areas uh, of query, um, clinical support, uh, what people need to do around their clinical practice. And I mean that in the broadest sense. Uh, there's been a huge amount of queries around workforce. How do I get back onto the register? Um, how do I get back into the NHS? Can I, should I, etc. cetera. Um, a lot of queries around um, private practice, of course. And all three of those areas, you know, it sounds like three distinct areas, but most queries come in. Are, are, are emerge of, of all three. They're, they're quite complex. So I was just hearing this morning that most calls that come into the CSP take about 3.5 minutes to deal with. Um, all the COVID-19 calls are taking on average 20 minutes. So it shows you that, that they're, they're much more complex. And then the other bit of what we're doing as the CSP, and this is the bit that often isn't in the public domain because it can't be to achieve the outcomes we want, and that is the influencing behind the scenes, whether that's politicians, whether it's arm's length bodies, whether it's the press. Um, uh, but a lot of that happens not um, uh, a sort of particularly obviously to members, but we're, we're, we're clearly at the moment trying to do that. We're taking the principle of not being critical in public. Um, I think that's a positive principle to take because it's really important that all of us are trying to pull together as a nation in something like this. But you know, be assured that uh, work is going on behind the scenes to um, influence what's happening or not happening in many cases. So I suppose that gives a summary of what the CSP is doing. Fantastic. And uh, there's been a lot being said uh, about the decision um, not to call for clinics to stop face-to-face -face, um, consultations. Um, could you just reflect on, on that as a, a call that you must have heard, no doubt, from many yeah. different stakeholder groups and members? Yeah. So right at the outset, uh, I took the decision that um, there would be lots of advice and we've seen it and some of it very provocative, some of it credible, uh, other parts of it not. And uh, in my view, you have to follow one plan. You have to have a strategy for dealing with something like this. And um, it was my decision that we follow the government advice. Um, the 
that is informed by the chief medical officer and the chief scientific officer. I don't have any greater expertise than they do, and nor do we at the CSP. Um, now, obviously, that doesn't mean we don't challenge, we don't question. Of course we do. But actually, we have followed the government advice. Now, when it came to uh, specifically around closing um, MSK outpatients in NHS, most NHS trusts were doing that anyway, uh, simply to redeploy their MSK staff or other outpatient staff um, to where the need was more acute. Um, in terms of private practice, um, even last Wednesday, the gui guidance that came out from the advice, it still had uh, physiotherapy clinics were regarded as essential and could stay open. Uh, so if we were to advise something different from that, we would be going against government advice. And I think one thing I've learned uh, before uh, and certainly during this uh, crisis is it is and can be very confusing. Um, so we have stuck with the government line all the way through this at the same time as strongly advising our members to switch to virtual consultations, which we did. Um, I'm sure Ruth can go through in, de in more detail, but we did this uh, right at the beginning, advising people to go virtual with their consultations as quickly as possible. But to go beyond that and advise closure, it's something that we can't do as a professional organisation, a membership organisation. We have no uh, governance to be able to do that. Um, and we have no way of policing it either. Um, so what we did was keep sticking with the government advice, keep repeating what the government was saying, but at the same time, strongly advocating for all the reasons, which I'm sure you're familiar with, that people should be um, uh, moving to virtual consultations if at all possible. And these are huge decisions for businesses like your own. Um, and it's something that um, people seem to think it's it's the same for everyone and everyone is in a very, very different position. Um, not all private practices are MSK for a start. Uh, some uh, of our members are solely reliant on their private practice income. Others aren't and, and many of those others have other choices. So for them, it might have been easier to shut their private practice because they had another source of income. It's actually um, very a very diverse um, membership that we have and, and across private practice, it is no less diverse, I would say. So I hope that's clear about the decision that we took. It was my decision that we follow the government advice and that's what we've stuck with all the way through. But as it changes, we will update uh, our guidance on our website and, and elsewhere. We're updating uh, a couple of times a day anyway, so that would change with that. No, thank you very much. Um, that brings me to bring in Ruth Tenhove, the Assistant Director of Practice and Development, particularly with the remit of evidence into practice. Ruth, thank you for joining us. Would you like to add any further detail to that with regards to the um, creation of that face-to-face -face guidance and, mm. and what, that, what that came to? Yeah, thanks, Jack. I mean, I think the first thing to say is as soon as the direction of travel was clear about self-isolation, um, we rapidly... Um, increased all the uh, effort in resources for virtual working. We put staff on to looking at the evidence and really pulling together evidence summaries about working virtually and its benefit to patient care. Um, I think looking at what the evidence was saying, 
There is a really key role for professional bodies in advocating for this approach because it's not something that clinicians feel particularly confident about. And it's really important that the professional body says this is the right direction of travel and we would support and encourage people in this way. So it's really important as CSP to be giving a really clear line on the benefits of remote consultation. So there's lots of guidance up on the CSP website now. And that's not just sort of how-to guides, but also lots of examples of where people have already been offering remote access to patients, what the issues are, what, what the challenges are, what the opportunities are really, and hopefully to, to build that really strong practice base of virtual consultations as well. So I suppose that was really going on in the in the in the early stages. And then as Karen said, the CSP guidance and the, the, the government guidance, which was very clear uh, getting towards the end of last week about the sorts of um, activities that physios should continue. And so we from that developed a very clear uh, checklist for people to think about when when a, a, a consultation should be either face-to-face -face or virtual. And actually, we came up with a clear line after that, that all consultations should be virtual unless people were in hospital and they required physiotherapy. There was a high suspicion of serious deterioration or underlying pathology, and physios were unable to determine that remotely or that a patient had urgent rehab needs, which if not met would require extra care from either general practice or secondary care or social care, and that rehab would support rapid discharge from secondary care as well. So some really clear criteria, which actually we've, we put out at um, the, I slightly lose track of time, we put out on the 23rd of March, which I think was last Tuesday. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, then we've had a lot of questions in from members about actually what those criteria mean. There's a flowchart that goes with that so that people can support their, their decision making. So I think that the guidance is there. I think what was also helpful was working very closely with Physio First on this and, um, and actually speaking with the insurers and all the key insurers agreeing to fund virtual consultations, not just first appointments, but follow up as well, to give confidence to those working outside the NHS that they could be funded to deliver virtual consultations. So I think there's, as time has moved on, uh, this, this agenda has moved, moved very rapidly as well. Yeah, I think um, a lot of people have, have been uh, reassured at the knowledge that you've been feeding forward some evidence-based understanding as to these things being used and, and having precedent as well so that, that people don't feel like they're making an enormous compromise to the clinical care they can deliver. Obviously, it takes yeah. some adjustment, but to know that there's a, a good legacy of evidence behind it has been very reassuring, I understand. Yes, yeah. I, I think as well, looking at... Uh, going forward in the future, that actually this is a really important and key opportunity for the profession to look at its broadest offer in terms of rehabilitation and make sure that um, we do evaluate this approach, we do really gather all the learning from this approach so that when we're out of it, we can really understand how it contributes to the overall rehabilitation offer. 
Um, and, and that, I think, is a really important piece of work for us going forward over the next few weeks. So we will be consulting with members about the best ways of doing that. Fantastic. What support is available from the CSP to support members delivering care in a new way and adapting to the new environment? So there's lots of guidance on the remote consultations um, and there's also opportunities to feed in through the different discussion forums or to make direct contact with the staff as well. Um, I mean, we are really regularly updating those frequently asked questions, some on a daily or twice daily basis sometimes to make sure that members have really got the most up to date evidence. Um, but I would say that we will be consulting with with sort of experts in the field around the evaluation of virtual consultations to make sure that we can really support uh, the wider membership and that, that members not only feel that they're delivering new ways of working, but they're actually recording and um, evaluating how that new way of working is, is working for them and their patient population. Fantastic. Thanks. Thanks so much for that, Ruth. I want to bring in Jill Rawlingson, who's the Assistant Director of Practice and Development with a remit of workforce and education. Jill, particularly want to just uh, ask you some questions around workforce implications of this crisis, which is where a lot of questions I know have been, have been coming in for. So could you just uh, reflect on perhaps starting with students, which we understand are being drafted into the efforts. Could you just tell us a little bit about that? Yes, yeah, certainly. Um, so our students across the board have all really been very keen to step up and, and support the workforce. And I think we need to do this in a really uh, well thought through way. Um, the HCPC have offered some very clear guidance to universities that they can be flexible in how they regulate and alter their programmes accordingly. So usually, for example, they would have to run any changes past the HCPC in quite a lengthy uh, process. And those processes have been relaxed as long as the universities can really justify uh, that there's a need to be able to flex those programmes. This means that we can have final year students who have completed sufficient clinical placement. And I think that's really important. There's quite a lot of discussion around um, this, what is sufficient and do I have to have done all my clinical placements? It's really important that students understand that every physiotherapy course is different. We at the, at the HCPC and the CSP are both being flexible around how many clinical hours need to be accrued. What's really important is that the university course teams can justify and demonstrate that students have completed sufficient clinical placement hours so they are safe and that they have met their program learning outcomes and that they've met, met all the relevant standards of proficiency from the HCPC. So we would usually ask students to have completed a thousand clinical hours and we are allowing universities to have a little bit of a flex on this. And if they feel that students are now at a point where they meet those criteria that I've outlined, they are able to join the new HCPC temporary register for students, which is now actually up and running and live. Fantastic. So this temporary register is, as I say, up and running. I know some students have been concerned because they can only currently see one physiotherapist on that register. Um, students will be added 
as per recommendation by each separate university. So if you're a student, your university will be in contact with you if they think your programme means that you are ready for that register, you've done sufficient clinical placement, you've met sufficient learning outcomes, and they will then put forward your name to the HCPC to be added to that temporary register. And then I think it's really important that students understand that it's then an opt-in process whether they wish to join the workforce. Uh, it's nobody is making you um, step up and join. We know that some students are in at-risk groups. They are perhaps caring for others and it's not something that they're able to do. And we don't want people to feel under pressure to do that, but the opportunity is there because we know a lot of students do want to help out at this difficult time. Yeah, it's, it's hugely admirable just how many of them are, are wanting to step up. And it's a baptism of fire in many ways, but one of the ways it needs to be that the, the, the first instance is that they look on at their own responsibility to try and assess their own understanding of what they are and aren't willing to do um, because not a lot of that can be devolved they need to, to look inwards to some extent on that um, but um, yep. I understand that the CSP has got some uh, grounds uh, some ways in which you're supporting them as they as they go into this brave new world yeah I think the, the other important thing to say is that universities will have to look on a student by student basis so as a student if perhaps you've not completed all your placements for other reasons like you've you've been sick or um you've had to miss some work or you've not passed some modules that we need to really be very clear that we are protecting the public and the profession and you may not therefore have your name put forward but you should be really clear on why it is or isn't that your name is being put forward so and I think the other thing to say is we don't want any students to be disadvantaged um, if they're planning to work perhaps in Australia um, in Canada where you do require 1000 hours and you're slightly short of that universities should be providing opportunities for you to complete those placements at a later date so that you can get that full uh, quota of hours so that you wouldn't be disadvantaged should you wish to apply to work overseas. No, that's 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 reassuring again that the CSP are going to be able to ask the higher education institutions to make sure they fulfil their obligations uh, thoroughly, especially because it would be a real shame if people that were putting themselves forward at this time of need to become disadvantaged in any which way. So again, that's that's great news. There's also the element of, as, as we've kind of, both Karen and Ruth have talked about, the returning physios coming back into the fold. Could you tell me a little bit about, about that and how we're going to go about supporting them? Yeah, absolutely. So we've got several groups. We've got those who've perhaps left the register in the last three years, who've retired or for whatever reason have decided to leave the register. So they can come back and are very much welcome to do so coming through each unit. Uh, sorry, each country has got a specific portal by which they can register their interest, giving specifics about what areas of practice they, they perhaps feel they can most uh, support through. So we're very much encouraging uh, returnees to practice. We've also got practitioners who are working in non-clinical facing roles who perhaps now wish to come and join the workforce. And again, they would be encouraged to come back uh, through the same channels. I think um, so the other group are perhaps a large proportion of our members and the workforce out there working in private practice that would like to now 
join the NHS. They may not have ever worked in the NHS or they may not have worked in the NHS for a long time, but we know they've got a huge amount of skills and expertise and we would very much welcome um, them coming back to the workforce. And again, we've got some really clear channels through the four country portals to actually sign up and register. And we know that lots of clinicians are quite worried about being asked to work in areas where they may not feel adequately skilled. This is obviously a pandemic that's creating predominantly respiratory illness. And I think it's really important to say that we're not asking every returnee to practice to work in an acute respiratory setting. Uh, far from it. We want to look at what people's skill sets are. We're going to have a huge demand for rehabilitation, helping manage people in community and keeping them out of hospital and allowing uh, our workforce who do have respiratory competencies to join the perhaps the respiratory and critical care workforce and backfill some of those positions with our private practitioners or other non-clinical facing uh, returnees. So there's really lots of opportunities and I think the important message I'd give is there's a role for everybody and nobody will be asked to work without the sufficient training and induction and supervision uh, relevant to what, what their own expertise is. Mm, fantastic. I mean, all, all corners of, of the system are being strained. Jill, uh, I know I want to bring you back in a little bit on another piece to the student puzzle. Yeah, so as well as final year students having an opportunity to join the workforce via the HCPC temporary register, we're also working with the AHP uh, government leads from all four countries um, to look at, and the HCPC, to look at how second year or middle year students uh, can join the workforce. And there are some proposals in place to be able to allow them to come and join as support workers, but finding ways where we can be really innovative and creative, working with the local providers and the universities to be able students to continue with their learning and, and give them credit for some of these placement hours. It will vary really depending on the setting and the university and the stage of the programme that the individual's at. But we're really keen that we can support students to continue learning and progress through their programmes because we want them not to be disadvantaged and to be able to graduate on time. However, and we want to give them opportunity to be able to step up and, and support the workforce in, in this difficult time. But it's going to take a little bit of creativity. It's going to take some flex from the universities. As I say, the HCPC and ourselves at the CSP are allowing the, the programmes to flex. But there may be opportunities, for example, practitioners for non-clinical facing physiotherapists to act perhaps as a supervisor to a student on placement um, to provide some pastoral support, some professional guidance and support. So we're really looking at some creative ways that we can allow the second year or middle years to contribute, but to still keep learning the planning of uh, the sort of getting through this huge amount of people volunteering into uh, not just volunteers from from the public but also of course healthcare professionals returning um, I've been given many an assurance that people are going to be contacted and get their opportunity to understand how it maps onto their skill set there isn't an expectation for them to work outside of their competence and nor should they which is a perfect place to bring in Claire Sullivan the director of employment relations and union services thank you for joining us Claire 
Would you uh, be able to just add some add some further detail on that with regards to this uh, this protection of members as they do new tasks and new things in new environments? Yeah. Um. Uh, so thanks, thanks, Jack. And um, I think this is affecting different people across the profession in different ways. So for some people, uh, naturally much happier working outside their comfort zone and like the change. Others find that much harder. And we also know that people are concerned about other issues like their own health and safety and that of their family members uh, because of what's going on at the moment. And what we've been saying to people is contact us with queries about that. And they have been. And we've got a number of FAQs, but also talking people through issues. And I think the main thing we're coming up against is that in the vast majority of cases, employers uh, want to work with people to work out what they feel, where they feel they can best contribute and where they can feel confident and supported. Um, where people, I mean, at the moment, obviously, we've got new legislation and new guidance, which says to people, if you are doing things that are outside what you would normally think of as your individual scope, um, there's plenty of other people doing the same. And we'll support you with that in a sort of truncated, escalated situation. Um, but nonetheless, if people are asked to do things that they feel are either unsafe, uh, illegal or even just outside their scope of practice, I mean, we will support them in the normal way. And although we and our reps out there in the NHS and beyond are not doing face to face meetings at the moment in the way we would be normally, uh, we are doing all of that in every other way. So through using VC and phone and email and so on, making representations to employers as needed. I think at the moment, employers, um, as with all our members, have been working at massively high speed to try and get all this in place. And frankly, at the moment, that a bit like all of us, that things are changing very rapidly rapidly so there have been a few glitches but i think they're all people working with great intent it's just as glitches sure. in the very rare circumstances jack where an employer is knowingly asking people to do things that um are are wrong um then we will pick those up in the normal way and and you know unfortunately we have had a few examples of that so far uh which we will be taking up in the same way as we would any other problem where an employer is doing things like that but it's very much the exception to the rule yeah i think that's really important then that we don't lack some really um important standards even though the circumstances are stretched and, and it's great that the csp's got members backs on that and that the steward system is still in operation because we'd heard sometimes about the upscaling of inquiry-based solutions from central csp shall we say with regards to weekend working and evening working etc but it's also good to know then that people can still reach and should still reach through their usual steward but just not face to face they won't bump into them in the corridors but they can still reach out to them uh, yeah that's right jack i mean we've got you know including the safety reps as well and this is big a big issue for safety reps obviously can help with this we've got nearly a thousand out and about they're nearly all in the nhs the only thing we are also saying they all have whatsapp groups locally and in their regions they are going mad hundreds of messages people sharing experience have you got a solution to x every day the only thing we're saying is your stewards are absolutely there for you but do bear in mind they're going through everything you're going through as an individual at the moment and on top of that they're trying to respond to queries um, from a whole group of different members so uh, you know this is why at the cfp centrally we are trying to step in to take a bit of that local pressure off the reps oh fantastic one of the one of the sort of 
popular mainstream questions in a sense that I no doubt you'll have been fielding a lot of is questions around PPE. So I wondered yeah. if you could speak to yeah. um, members' concerns over over that. Yeah, I mean, this is, I think, uh, as you know, we've been working this weekend providing advice. And I think for all of us in the inquiries team, in, in if you like, my side of the house and in the professional advice service, this was the biggest theme over this weekend and last week, without a doubt. Um, and this morning, um, after discussion with my leadership colleagues, I've been in a meeting uh, with other TUC unions across the public sector. And again, this is the biggest issue. And it it certainly, again, is taking a little while to sort out. So we know we've got a range of issues with personal protective equipment. One is there is, we know, a stockpile, but there have been interruptions in the supply chain, which the government has taken over and is trying to trying to sort out. But there is a problem, even where the equipment exists, with getting the right equipment to the right place, the right people at the right time. And that is a huge problem. And it's got to be resolved this week. And we're continuing to apply pressure for that to happen. Um, secondly... There has been some differing information. Some people, are, some of our members are looking at primary research. Others are looking at public health and other guidance. Uh, there has been some different advice about what we're talking about in terms of what sort of personal protective equipment people need for different things. So obviously, people working in high risk areas such as critical care, intensive care, A&E, um, particularly where there are aerosol generating procedures and active respiratory physiotherapy, chest physio going on. That's one group. Then there's a group of people who are doing much more uh, sort of general rehab and mobility work, but with people who may have or are suspected to have or confirmed as having COVID. There's that group. And then there's the other group, of course, where increasingly hospitals are uh, creating green areas or COVID free areas. And we know there are some COVID free hospitals um, where obviously a patient's just like a patient was three months ago or a month ago. And you don't need to be worrying about that. But what we are saying to people is we're going to be pushing much, much harder on PPE this week um, behind the scenes as we were last week, but also more publicly because we it's reached a really critical point at the moment. So that's the first thing. Second thing is if you think you are being asked to do something without the appropriate personal protective equipment, say no. Do not feel you must say yes. It's critical that people are safe. And some of you will have read, others will have read about the sort of general viral loading for healthcare workers. And, you know, we're seeing some desperately tragic cases of healthcare workers having to be ventilated, healthcare workers dying, you know, and we have absolutely got to do everything we can to make sure that the people doing the work we need them to do are protected. Some of the confusion, I imagine, lies where people are speaking in between trusts or between services. How much of it is going to be local policy and how much of it is going to be national? Um, there has to be an element of both. Um, I mean, what we want to do nationally uh, for England and indeed across the UK, wherever we can, and, and we know we've had a lot of feedback that this is working really quite well in Scotland, certainly much better in Scotland, um, what we want to do is have as much determined nationally as possible, because that just means fewer decisions to be made locally and local decision makers can focus on other things. However, there obviously do have to be local decisions around things like distribution of PPE, 
ordering on the helpline from the stockpile where you're going to get it, but also where you are, you know, sort of stratifying where the different levels of PPE need to get to. So there will have to be local decisions. And and I do think it's worth just putting in a, a sort of another point here, which, of course, we're talking primarily about our members providing health services, clearly both in the acute sector, but also with acute and unwell patients in the community. Outside of that, of course, we've got also people throughout the care sector, but all the other essential services, the sort of unsung heroes that people are starting to talk about. And they obviously need access to the personal protective equipment too. And those decisions, again, will need to be made locally. So I'm saying national guidance and pressure behind that national guidance, but some local decisions will have to be made. So Claire, just there's so many different corners to a workforce and so many different health challenges that we face at the moment. What else is the CSP doing for some of the more niche areas of, of workforce? Yeah, great. Thanks, Jack. I mean, I mean, I think people can look out not only when we talk again, but look out on other information we're putting out and FAQs on the website for some of the other areas. And that's increasing guidance about pregnant workers, but also where people have got um, family members who they may be concerned about being vulnerable. We're doing some more work this week specifically on the shielded population, the most vulnerable. Um, we're going to be doing loads on redeployment and what that means and looks like, which we've tucked on, uh, touched on. The other thing is uh, care and school places for key workers. Uh, we're going to make more progress on this week. And finally, which is just starting this week, staff testing and the testing of household members uh, of people at, uh, who are key workers. So all sorts of things that we made some progress on on issues last week. We've got a load more issues we need to make progress on this week nationally and locally. So I'd say that, yeah. Fantastic. Thank you so much. That's brilliant. No, fantastic. And so because it's such a moving picture, this is exactly why we've got a weekly newscast coming to you. So there'll be more detail, more meat on the bones coming soon. But it's great to hear all the things that the, the cogs are turning on already. Karen, I want to come to you for, for final closing remarks for this uh, first newscast then. Um, what are your final, final things you want to let members know at this point in time? I think uh, huge gratitude once again for everything everybody's doing. Um, we're here to support you. I think and I hope that listening to my colleagues, you will appreciate the value of the CSP, both as a professional body, but also as a trade union, because our source of influence and advice comes from both aspects. Um, there will be time to think about the opportunities that come out of this crisis. Perhaps now is not that time, but I think I'm pretty certain that this is going to change our profession and it will be important not to go backwards uh, but to go forwards um, and that I think what I was hearing through all of that is how united we all are um, and one of the things that unites us is our background in rehabilitation uh, whether that's in the acute setting community primary care mental health or physical health, that the underlying rehab focus, keeping people to their maximum independence, fulfilling their potential is what brings us all together here, as well as quite obviously saving lives in the first instance. Um, I think the last thing I would say is that everybody is doing their best, um, whether on the front line or in support of the front line. And I think it's really important that we all start with the assumption that the intent 
that everybody has is to do the right thing. Um, and some of the upset that I am seeing and hearing directly from members is about the very public criticism at times that those members are getting. And um, I happy to take that criticism I'm paid to take that criticism but some of our members are not and they're doing their absolute best so I would ask everyone to look after each other to be kind we've all got a responsibility to look after our own health and well-being but we can also look after others we have to be aware of the impact that we ourselves have on others and I just uh, want to say really to close that we're, we at the CSP will do our utmost to support you and be as accessible through this difficult time as we possibly can. Karen, Ruth, Jill, Claire, thank you so much for your time and all the hard work you're doing. And thank you, Jack. Thanks, Jack. Thank you, Jack. Thank you. Thanks. 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 Uh